A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 15. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 5. Bedrashain to Minia, Part 3. Such is the sunset we see this evening as we approach Minia, and such is the sunset we are destined to see with scarcely a shade of difference at the same hour and under precisely the same conditions for many a month to come. It is very beautiful, very tranquil, full of wonderful light and most subtle gradations of tone, and attended by certain phenomena of which I shall have more to say presently, but it lacks the variety and gorgeousness of our northern skies. Nor given the dry atmosphere of Egypt can it be otherwise. Those who go up the Nile expecting, as I did, to see magnificent Turneresque pageants of purple and flame-color and gold, will be disappointed as I was. For your Turneresque pageant cannot be achieved without such accessories of cloud and vapor as in Nubia are wholly unknown, and in Egypt are of the rarest occurrence. Once, and only once, in the course of an unusually protracted sojourn on the river, had we the good fortune to witness a grand display of the kind, and then we had been nearly three months in the Dahabiyah. Meanwhile, however, we never weary of these stainless skies, but find in them, evening after evening, fresh depths of beauty and repose. As for that strange transfer of color from the mountains to the sky, we had repeatedly observed it while travelling in the Dolomites the year before, and had always found it take place, as now, at the moment of the sun's first disappearance. But what of this mighty after-shadow, climbing half the heavens and bringing night with it? Can it be the rising shadow of the world projected on the one horizon as the sun sinks on the other? I leave the problem for wiser travellers to solve. We have not science enough amongst us to account for it. That same evening, just as the twilight came on, we saw another wonder— the new moon on the first night of her quarter, a perfect orb, dusky, distinct, and outlined all round with a thread of light no thicker than a hair. Nothing could be more brilliant than this tiny rim of flashing silver, while every detail of the softly glowing globe within its compass was clearly visible. Tycho, with its vast crater, showed like a volcano on a raised map, and near the edge of the moon's surface, where the light and shadow met, Keen sparkles of mountain summits catching the light and relieved against the dusk were to be seen by the naked eye. Two or three evenings later, however, when the silver ring was changed to a broad crescent, the unilluminated part was, as it were, extinguished, and could no longer be discerned even by the help of a glass. The wind having failed, as usual, at sunset, the crew set to work with a will and punted the rest of the way, so bringing us to Minia about nine that night. Next morning we found ourselves moored close under the Khedive's summer palace, so close that one could have tossed a pebble against the latticed windows of His Highness's harem. A fat gatekeeper sat outside in the sun, smoking his morning chibouk and gossiping with the passers-by. A narrow promenade scantily planted with sycamore figs ran between the palace and the river. A steamer or two and a crowd of native boats lay moored under the bank, and yonder, at the far end of the promenade, a minaret and a cluster of whitewashed houses showed which way one must turn in going to the town. 
It chanced to be market-day, so we saw Minia under its best aspect, than which nothing could well be more squalid, dreary, and depressing. It was like a town dropped unexpectedly into the midst of a ploughed field, the streets being mere trodden lanes of mud-dust, and the houses a succession of windowless mud-prisons with their backs to the thoroughfare. The bazaar, which consists of two or three lanes a little wider than the rest, is roofed over here and there with rotting palm-rafters and bits of tattered matting, while the market is held in a space of waste ground outside the town. The former, with its little cupboard-like shops in which the merchants sit cross-legged like shabby old idols in shabby old shrines, the ill-furnished shelves, the familiar Manchester goods, the gaudy native stuffs, the old red saddles and faded rugs hanging up for sale, the smart Greek stores where Bass's Ale, Claret, Curaçao, Cyprus, Vermouth, Cheese, Pickles, Sardines, Worcester Sauce, Blacking, biscuits, preserved meats, candles, cigars, matches, sugar, salt, stationery, fireworks, jams, and patent medicines can all be bought at one fell swoop. The native cook's shop, exhaling savory perfumes of kebabs and lentil soup, and presided over by an Abyssinian sawyer blacker than the blackest historical personage ever was painted, the surging, elbowing, clamorous crowd, the donkeys, the camels, the street cries, the chatter, the dust, the flies, the fleas, and the dogs, all put us in mind of the poorer quarters of Cairo. In the market it is even worse. Here are hundreds of country folks sitting on the ground behind their baskets of fruits and vegetables. Some have eggs, butter, and buffalo cream for sale, while others sell sugar canes, limes, cabbages, tobacco, barley, dried lentils, split beans, maize, wheat, and dura. The women go to and fro with bouquets of live poultry. The chickens scream, the sellers rave, the buyers bargain at the top of their voices, the dust flies in clouds, the sun pours down floods of light and heat, you can scarcely hear yourself speak, and the crowd is as dense as that other crowd which is at this very moment, on this very Christmas Eve, is circulating among the alleys of Leadenhall Market. The things were very cheap. A hundred eggs cost about fourteen pence in English money, chickens sold for five pence each, pigeons from two pence to two pence halfpenny, and fine live geese for two shillings a head. The turkeys, however, which were large and excellent, were priced as high as three and sixpence, being about half as much as one pays in Middle and Upper Egypt for a lamb. A good sheep may be bought for sixteen shillings or a pound. The M.B.s, who had no dragoman and did their own marketing, were very busy here, laying in a store of fresh provision, bargaining fluently in Arabic, and escorted by a bodyguard of sailors. A solitary dome-palm, the northernmost of its race and the first specimen one meets with on the Nile, grows in a garden adjoining this market-place but we could scarcely see it for the blinding dust. Now a dome-palm is just the sort of tree that De Wint should have painted, odd, angular, with forked stems, each of which terminates in a shock-headed crown of stiff finger-like fronds, shading heavy clusters of big shiny nuts about the size of Jerusalem artichokes. It is, I suppose, the only nut in the world of which one throws away the kernel and eats the shell, but the kernel is as hard as marble, while the shell is fibrous and tastes like stale gingerbread. The dome-palm must bifurcate, for bifurcation is the law of its being, 
but I could never discover whether there was any fixed limit to the number of stems into which it might subdivide. At the same time, I do not remember having seen any with less than two heads or more than six. Coming back through the town, we were accosted by a withered, one-eyed hag like a reanimated mummy who offered to tell us our fortunes. Before her lay a dirty rag of handkerchief full of shells, pebbles, and chips of broken glass and pottery. Squatting toad-like under a sunny bit of wall, the lower part of her face closely veiled, her skinny arms covered with blue and green glass bracelets, and her fingers with misshapen silver rings, she hung over these treasures, shook, mixed, and interrogated them with all the fervor of divination, and delivered a string of the prophecies usually forthcoming on these occasions. You have a friend far away, and your friend is thinking of you. There is good fortune in store for you, and money is coming to you, and pleasant news on the way. You will soon receive letters in which there will be something to vex you, but more to make you glad. Within thirty days you will unexpectedly meet one whom you dearly love, etc., etc., etc. It was just the old familiar story retold in Arabic, without even such variations as might have been expected from the lips of an old fellaha born and bred in a provincial town of Middle Egypt. It may be that ophthalmalia especially prevailed in this part of the country, or that being brought unexpectedly into the midst of a large crowd, one observed the people more narrowly, but I certainly never saw so many one-eyed human beings as that morning at Minia. There must have been present in the streets and market-place from ten to twelve thousand natives of all ages, and I believe it is not an exaggeration to say that at least every twentieth person, down to little toddling children of three and four years of age, was blind of an eye. Not being a particularly well-favored race, this defect added the last touch of repulsiveness to faces already sullen, ignorant, and unfriendly. A more unprepossessing population I would never wish to see, the men half stealthy, half insolent, the women bold and fierce, the children filthy, sickly, stunted, and stolid. Nothing in provincial Egypt is so painful to witness as the neglected condition of very young children. Those belonging even to the better class are for the most part shabbily clothed and of more than doubtful cleanliness, while the offspring of the very poor are simply encrusted with dirt and sores and swarming with vermin. It is at first hard to believe that the parents of these unfortunate babies err not from cruelty, but through sheer ignorance and superstition. Yet it is so, and the time when these people can be brought to comprehend the most elementary principles of sanitary reform is yet far distant. To wash young children is injurious to health, therefore the mothers suffer them to fall into a state of personal uncleanliness which is alone enough to engender disease. To brush away the flies that beset their eyes is impious, hence ophthalmalia and various kinds of blindness. I have seen infants lying in their mother's arms with six or eight flies in each eye. I have seen the little helpless hands put down reprovingly if they approached the seat of annoyance. I have seen children of four and five years old with a large fleshy lump growing out where the pupil had been destroyed. Taking these things into account, the wonder is, after all, not that three children should die in Egypt out of every five, not that each twentieth person in certain districts should be blind or partially blind, but that so many as forty percent of the whole infant population should actually live to grow up, and that ninety-five percent should enjoy the blessing of sight. 
For my own part, I had not been many weeks on the Nile before I began systematically to avoid going about the native towns whenever it was practicable to do so. That I may so have lost an opportunity of now and then seeing more of the street life of the people is very probable, but such outside glimpses are of little real value, and I at all events escaped the sight of much poverty, sickness, and squalor. The condition of the inhabitants is not worse, perhaps, in an Egyptian bellad than in many an Irish village, but the condition of the children is so distressing that one would willingly go any number of miles out of the way, rather than witness their suffering without the power to alleviate it. If the population in and about Minia are personally unattractive, their appearance at all events matches their reputation, which is as bad as that of their neighbors. Of the manners and customs of Beni Suif we had already some experience, while public opinion charges Minia, Rhoda, and most of the towns and villages north of Siut with the like marauding propensities. As for the villages at the foot of Beni Hassan, they have been mere dens of thieves for many generations, and though raised to the ground some years ago by way of punishment, are now rebuilt, and in as bad odor as ever. It is necessary, therefore, in all this part of the river, not only to hire guards at night, but, when the boat is moored, to keep a sharp lookout against thieves by day. In Upper Egypt it is very different. There the natives are good-looking, good-natured, gentle and kindly, and though clever enough at manufacturing and selling modern antiquities, are not otherwise dishonest. That same evening, it was Christmas Eve, nearly two hours earlier than their train was supposed to be due, the rest of our party arrived at Minia. End of section 15